the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. I'm going to come clean. I encountered today's guest's professional title before I met the man himself. I was told to chase down the person who held the Chair of Ignatian Thought and Imagination at Regis University. And I'll be honest, I was not disappointed. Dr. Chris Pramick is said chair. He's also an associate professor of religious studies. His interests focus on the intersection of faith, creativity, and justice. And our conversation reflects this multitude. We jump from Thomas Merton to the musical tradition of the Black Catholic Church to Buddhism to Joni Mitchell. Woven throughout the conversation is a clear thread of Ignatian spirituality and an invitation to each of us to discover the artist spirit alive within ourselves. Chris has written six books, including the two we discuss in this episode, Hope Sings So Beautiful, Graced Encounters Across the Color Line, and The Artist Alive, Explorations in Music, Art, and Theology. He's also written two award-winning studies on Thomas Merton. You can learn more about Chris, his work, and his books at the links in the show notes. But now, here's Dr. Chris Pramick. Dr. Chris Premick, welcome to AMDG. We're glad you're with us today. Hey, Eric, I'm very happy to be with you. Chris, I, I have to just uh, come clean. I, I, was, I am still so uh, just enchanted by your title. At Regis University, you are the Chair of Ignatian Thought and Imagination. And, and that was one of the reasons why um, I was so drawn to your work and to, and to learning a little bit about uh, uh, what you're uh, what you're working on and what you've been working on, and so I want to I, I want to kind of jump in by way of that idea idea of Ignatian imagination, and um, and you've written a whole bunch of books, but we're going to focus on um, well just a couple of them in our conversation today. So I, I want to start by reading this line from your book, The Artist Alive, and it really it really struck me. You write quote. The artistic spirit is that spirit of heightened receptivity and creative response that resists unthinking conformity to the way things are, daring us to imagine again what is possible in a world charged with grace. End quote. Awesome. I love it. So you you imply, right, that this artistic spirit is present in all of us. So maybe just to start, you can you can unpack how can we get in touch with that? Sure. Sure. Well, you, you probably heard echoes of Ignatius in that in that um, both of the passage you just read, as well as my job title. As you know, you know, Ignatius, uh, one of his distinctive geniuses was to invite us to use the, uh, all of our senses and the imaginative faculty in our prayer, entering into the scenes of the Gospels and so forth, so that we, uh, at the end of the day, we we might fall in love with with Jesus, you know, as we accompany him through his ministry, his death and resurrection. So, you know, what I find in um, that distinctively Ignatian approach to spirituality is very akin to what I experience in the arts, in music, particularly as a as a lifelong uh, musician, piano player, as a kid learning the piano. Um, for me music was a kind of a doorway into a world of, of grace and mystery and wonder. Um, and over time, of course, as a nine-year-old, I didn't know about Ignatius at all. Uh, but as I delve deeper into the Ignatian uh, tradition, 
I was pretty fascinated by, um, you know, his encouragement that God, that, that actually we, we always say God in all things, finding God in all things. And yet I think when you, uh, when you look at the spiritual exercises, for example, of Ignatius, there's also this profound sense of God coming toward us, always reaching mm-hmm. toward us through all things, in all things. So Ignatius, as it were, kind of reverses that perspective. God is always active in the creation, moving toward us, um, seeking the beloved, as Ignatius says in the fourth week, you know, through the material creation and through the very ordinary stuff of our everyday lives. So um, your question, I think, has to do with how do we cultivate that artistic or that art spirit in in ourselves. Yeah, the implication is, yeah, it's in all of us. Um, by the way, that title, my, the title of my book, The Artist Alive, comes from a painter named Robert Henry, who wrote a book called The Art Spirit in 1923. It's still in print. It's kind of a classic in literature about the arts. And Robert Henry in a sense, is very Ignatian. He insists that the art spirit uh, is not an appendage. It's not an add-on. It's something that uh, lives and breathes in all of us, but it needs to be cultivated. So no matter your profession, your discipline, your your particular expertise, Henry would say to live a creative, daring, uh, self-expressive life is to get in touch with that spirit of the artist that lives in all of us. And in part, that means resistance to, as you read in the passage, uh, the so-called way things are, right? Right. The way the world is presented to us, so-called the real world, as our parents often lectured us when, <laughs> when we were kids, just wait until you get into the real world. Uh, I would say that there's a strong, very strong spirit of skepticism, of cynicism in our culture, uh, that uh, tends to downplay or dismiss the art spirit as naive, as childish, and so forth. Um, I would say, I would counter that, in fact, it is the root of our, uh, of, of our, the seed, the cradle of all of our ideas, of, of our happiness as human beings. Hmm. So, if I were to answer your question this way in terms of how do we get in touch with that? Well, you know, Robert Henry or Ignatius might say, what are those practices that daily give you life? Those activities that give you joy, that energize you, you know, Joni Mitchell, the great uh, singer songwriter of the 60s, 70s, and even today who's enjoying a great Renaissance. She often describes the art of songwriting as kind of, profoundly receptive, just opening yourself, what she calls in kind of joking manner, the Blarney, the, the, you know, and the the Irish say is the Blarney running tonight, you know, Uh, and by which she means an openness to the miraculous. She uses that language and that sometimes it just breaks through, you know, Ignatius, you know, the examine those daily practices of opening ourselves to God's presence in examining the inner movements of our lives. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, you, you referenced it already. Uh, and 
um, and you certainly write about it a, a, a bit in your in your books here. But um, like, here's a key moment, right? You're, you're a musician. There's a key moment when you're you were young. I think you said about nine years old at the piano. Um, and this is that. Uh, at least that's kind of where you start your own story in some ways of of the artist spirit. Um, and it reminds me a little bit of like you know in the Ignatian tradition we're always talking about cannonball moments. You know, what's that that thing that kind of knocks us off our our trajectory and turns us around? Um, but you know, and so it's a, a little bit akin to that, but I, it seems, at least uh, my, my listening to you and my reading your work, it uh, seems a little quieter, a little, a little more subdued, the, this kind of a, uh, the equivalent of the, the artist spirit, uh, cannonball moment. So what, you know, you, you mentioned the examine, what other ways, as you've reflected back on your story and you've pinpointed, um, you know, one, two, three different places where you can really feel the art, artist spirit manifesting, um, you know, in new mm -hmm. ways. How would you invite listeners to, to look for those moments in their own lives and in their own art and creativity? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Eric. Um, it's true. I mean, at the, when I look back now, learning the piano, uh, sitting at, in the dark in the basement with a single light on the, on the keys was, was kind of a magical space for me, a refuge, if you will. And a powerful image. It's a really, like a very disappointing image too, just to, just to yeah. conjure. Yeah. You know, and I, I mean, I grew up in a busy kind of chaotic household with five brothers and sisters. And, um, you know, I think that space for me was a was kind of an early uh, tutorial in the art of paying attention, of listening mm -hmm. deeply you know, experimenting across different modalities on the piano, feeling the the strings vibrate in my body, which is a very it's a physicality to playing the piano. In part, it just got me out of my head, you know, uh, this anxiety or worry of what am I going to do with my life, et cetera, that all young people, I think, uh, tend to carry. The piano still kind of gets me out of my head and into the body, into the senses, et cetera. So I would say, you know, whatever, more broadly, for folks on the spiritual journey, again, it's so important to to claim and name those activities that give you life in that way that sort of bring you into uh, the that ground you in your body, um, that give you peace. So many of my students here in Colorado talk about hiking or skiing, uh, biking, being out in the outdoors, which for them is a kind of analogous kind of place of, of refuge, of getting out of, a, of the head into the body, into the spirit, feeling the mystery of creation and all of that. You know, I would say, um, I think the other, the other part of that, so I've just kind of referred to daily spiritual practices or, you know, activities that one could say, you know, use, even use the language of a spiritual grounding, etc. The other, the other part that you probably that you've mentioned or alluded to in my work is those experiences of encounter that take us out of our comfort zone, and where your curiosity is aroused. You know, mm -hmm. uh, your your own elements of creativity that you didn't know really were there, but that the encounter with a strange culture, for example, or uh, outside of one's usual boundaries. You know, for me that. Um, I hope this touches on your question, but for me as a young man, it was the first time I walked into an African-American Catholic church and experienced liturgy in a black Catholic, uh, you know, uh, style, if you will, 
that as again as a musician that just uh woke up parts of my uh parts of my spirituality that i hadn't quite tapped into growing up in a predominantly white suburban catholic parish great experience loving community um, but comparatively the music to to me was a bit <laughs> stayed it was a bit reserved it, the whole style was kind of a high church liturgy that I grew up in. And what I found in the Black Catholic Church was was a kind of a, uh, an openness to the spirit or responsiveness, a call and response type of experience, where I just felt something moving in me and it awakened my curiosity. Uh, within a couple of years, I was playing piano for a Black Catholic Church here in Denver. Uh, St. Ignatius Loyola was formerly now a Jesuit parish. Um, sadly, the Jesuits are no longer there. Just recently, were asked by the diocese. Uh, so, I think those kinds of experiences that pull us out of our comfort zone uh, and and invite us to encounter different cultures, different different human experiences. You know, and I'll I'll just mention one other briefly. And that is to be immersed in Buddhist environments as a young man. So I went and studied music at a Buddhist uh, college in Boulder, Colorado here, uh, Naropa, now Naropa University. And being immersed in that, that kind of contemplative environment, which put a very high premium on the arts as well, poetry, dance, musical composition, etc. Um, and of course, Buddhist studies, meditation and the Tibetan Buddhist lineage uh, of the of the university's founder, that for me as a, like a 26 year old was like, you know, wow, it was kind of mind bending, and it also resonated quite a lit a lot with my own Catholic contemplative sensibilities, if you will, my own love of Thomas Merton, for example, as a kid, as a teenager, and as a young man was very much uh, attuned or found a home, found a sense of home in this Buddhist environment. You know, so I'm sure listeners can identify moments in their life when they were invited to move outside of their comfort zone, whether religiously or culturally. And those were real turning points of, of like seeing the world from another perspective. Yeah, no, I, you've hit on so many really important and good points. I want to... Um... I want to pick up, though, I know Thomas Merton is a really key figure in your work and in your own kind of um, uh, just, your, just your life in general. So I wonder, and, you, and you've mentioned him uh, in, in the story you've, you've just told us, I wonder if you might uh, unpack a little bit more about how Thomas Merton and, of course, Ignatius of Loyola um, influence your or have influenced or continue to influence your, uh, your life and work uh, creatively. Sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, if you ask people who love Merton or have read him, they'll every one of them will give you a different story or entry point into his writings. And almost to a person will say, you know, it's as if Merton was writing to me directly. Um, he's a profoundly complex and multifaceted individual, but at, at the age of 15 is when I first encountered his writings. My mom gave me a little one of his journals a little book called The Sign of Jonas. Uh, and at age 15, I was reading Merton and discovering in him uh, this sort of profound nature mysticism, if I could put it that way. 
his account of, um, you know, being outside at night at the monastery in the hills of Kentucky, uh, praying on the roof of the monastery. Uh, there's a famous passage called The Fire Watch, July 4th, 1952, in which Merton describes moving through the monastery at night, checking for fire, and finally coming up onto the roof of the monastery in the middle of the night. And the passage becomes a dialogue between him and, and God, and a passage through his memory, different memories of, of his uh, days in the monastery. But ultimately, a confrontation with his own mortality, his death. Will it come like this, the moment of my death? As he looks out into the stars, will you raise a ladder between me and the moon and set my feet upon the ladder into the stars? He's listening to the all the creatures singing in the water courses, the bugs and the plants and the trees in the middle of the night that surround the monastery. It just, as a young kid, it just... It, something in it, there was a music in Merton's writings, if I could put it that way, yeah. that uh, really captured me. I would say much later, you know, it wasn't until my later 20s that I encountered uh, any Jesuits that I uh, came into the orbit of Ignatian spirituality. And when I look back, I think, well, that's curious, Merton, and then, you know, Ignatius, <laughs> uh, on, on the one hand, they look very different, uh, the Benedictine and then a kind of the, um, you know, the very active life of, of, of Jesuits, the vow of stability versus sort of this image of the spiritual life as pilgrimage, always on the move, walking on the road, etc. And yet Merton, him too, was a pilgrim, as you know, traveling to the east uh, at, in the last year of his life and finally dying in Bangkok, Thailand in 1968. So there are elements of Merton's sort of journey that also look somewhat Ignatian, always extending, pushing uh, the boundaries at, you know, at the edges of ex exploring, exploring other religious traditions and so, so on. Um, I think to me, it makes more sense now as an older person, um, how these two spiritualities kind of complement each other in my, in my own journey. And I try to bring elements of both into my writing, into my teaching, certainly. And students find both figures, both ways, if you will, very, very attractive, very appealing. Um, and their convergences, I think, become more and more evident to me as I get older. Yeah. I mean, I, I am no expert in, in Merton, I'm not, nor am I an expert in Ignatius, but I just, um, th there's a mystical element, right? There's a contemplative element. There's an imaginative element um, to both. And um, and even the, the, the scene you described with Merton, you know, that kind of sinking into the, the moment, right? And, and realizing God is there, you know, singing through so many different uh, you know, different, different things. Um, hmm. then I, I, I want you, you, you mentioned your experience with Buddhism. I, I want you, if you, if you could kind of layer in, um, uh, what you've, what you've learned and how you've, you've integrated, um, kind of the, uh, the Buddhist approach as well, um, insofar as it, it, it kind of influences your creativity. Yeah. I, I, the, the first story that comes to mind, my teacher at Naropa was, a. Uh, is uh, a brilliant uh, piano player, oboe player, um, rather bassoon, bassoonist, and composer named Bill Douglas. He was a student, uh, I 
raised in Canada, I think as a Christian of, of perhaps Episcopalian uh, background, Bill Douglas, but became uh, interested in the teachings of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was the Tibetan Buddhist who founded monasteries in the West, including uh, founding of Naropa in, in Boulder, Colorado, of all places, you know. And so Bill was profoundly infused with this, the teachings of Buddhism from the Tibetan lineage through his teacher. And I remember just sitting at the piano next to Bill during our lessons, and I would be playing something for him, and he would stop me almost immediately. He would kind of punch me in the shoulder, <laughs> like, like, Chris, Chris, where are you? Where are you? You know, I, I don't feel that you're here. You're not, you're not present. You know, he would say, when you sit down at the piano and when you play the, every note, the first note and every note after, you must bring yourself into the needlepoint of nowness, mm. the needlepoint of nowness, he would say. And he was right. You know, my mind would be elsewhere. Bill just taught me in a very gentle uh, way um, the power of, of presence, of, of presence. And by, by presence, we can think both temporally and, um, you know, geographically, spatially. I am, I am here now in the present moment, temporally. And no, I'm nowhere else geographically in my head thinking about what I have to do later. In a way, that language um, reinforced, it echoed what I had learned from Thomas Merton already and in the Catholic contemplative tradition. And of course, later in the Ignatian tradition, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a profound reminder to, to that, um, you know, that this, as Merton puts it, the seeds of eternity are in the present, the, you know, in the, in the palm of your hand. So, you know, wake up, come, come into this moment. Uh, the other thing about learning the piano or any instrument, any discipline like learning an instrument, it really forces you to, you know, learning scales as a child is not a pleasant thing. No. <laughs> but but it, what it does is it, as it were, um, it disciplines your muscle memory to bring yourself into uh, the present so that later that to, to master the mechanics of your instrument, so that later you don't have to think about it. You don't have to, to endlessly practice scales because the movements have been, as it were, um, incarnated in, in your flesh, your muscle, your, your muscle memory. So the disciplines of prayer are very much akin to the disciplines of learning a musical instrument. We show up at mass week after week. We show up for the exam night after night. Sometimes it's terribly dry and boring, like learning scales. There's not a lot of fireworks. And yet we continue to come before God and place ourselves under, as it were, under the presence of God and review the, the, the moments of our day. There, over time, these practices, these disciplines, they really bear fruit in the sense that, you know, they open us to that relation at relationship, the relationship with whether it's the piano or with the hidden, the silent, the unseen God, you know, that we come before uh, with humility and in our need 
and in our joy and our needs and our happiness, uh, what have you. So I think to bring all that together, Buddhism came into my uh, studies at a time when my so the soil of my heart, if you will, was really um, well tilled to receive it. And at a time when I had become a little bit um, disillusioned with the Catholicism of my youth, hmm. Buddhism tilled the heart a little bit and it prepared me to, I think in retrospect, I can see it prepared me to come back to my own, uh, the childhood faith, but in a very different space as an adult uh, and with new experiences to draw into that uh, new reappropriation, if you will, of my faith. And that's right when the Jesuits came into my orbit, just as I was finishing up my studies at Naropa. Yeah. Well, I, that's, um, that's such a helpful uh, image and in, in that the, the, the would you say like being in the pinpoint or um, of the moment, and um, yeah. and of course I think yeah, music and in practice is is so key to that. Um, one of the other images that you use in your writing that I, I really resonated was this this invitation to remember that the artist is the one that reopens the page. And this might kind of go back to that that sense of of staying present in the moment, not rushing um, to you know where where we're not. We are where we are not yet, right? Um, and so, you know, you, you talk about how uh, the artist dares to reopen the book, to continue to imagine new possibilities, and ultimately to refuse to allow God's own creative spirit uh, to be a thing of the past, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, wanna, I wonder how you might frame this or use this as a way of approaching justice, using kind of creativity um, and justice together. Yeah, beautiful. Well, again, that that image of uh, reopening the book comes from Robert Henry. He says, um, where others are ready to close the book, <laughs> the artist reopens it and uh, insists that there are more pages, more chapters to be written, you know? Love that, I love that image. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's the life of the activist, you know, the person concerned with social justice essentially is saying, look, um, I will not accept uh, or settle for the so-called way things are and must be, you know. The artist dares to imagine the art spirit in us. Again, this is, this is the prophetic spirit as well. Um, names the gap between what is and the way things might be, right? So dares to imagine the possibilities for things as they might be. Think of Dr. Martin Luther King in Birmingham jail. You know, his famous letter from Birmingham dares us to imagine that we need not accept the future that has been laid out for us by the powers and principalities of our society. And King, no doubt, uh, you know, um, had moments of real despair uh, and darkness. He describes one night in his kitchen when he, in the middle of the night, once again, he got a phone call with death threats to his family. We're going to bomb your house. And he hung up the phone and he describes just walking into his kitchen, sitting at the table and talking directly to God. I'm afraid. I'm really afraid, you know? So, um, he also says he had a profound sense uh, of consolation in that moment that God was there with him saying to him, Martin, keep doing what you're doing. You know, it's necessary and I will be with you. 
And from that moment, uh, his fears just kind of dissipated, you know. So um, I think there is a profound vulnerability in the life of the artist to allow uh, and of the activist to allow our hearts to be opened again and again to the wounds of the world and to, you know, uh, resolve day after day to keep keep the work going, even though we may not see the fruits of our labors. You know, as King certainly uh, did not, and famously the night before his assassination said, you know, I can, I, I'm, I've made it to the mountaintop and I can see into the promised land. I may not get there with you, but we as a people will make it to the promised land. To me, there's something profoundly uh, akin to the art spirit in the activist spirit, the prophetic spirit. And I try to, in that first chapter of, of my book, The Artist Alive, I look at the life of Abraham Joshua Heschel, Rabbi Heschel, as a, another like king, another powerful example of the, the kinship between that art spirit and the prophetic spirit, which refuses to close the book, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I like, I like that a lot that, you know, the, um, the activist and the artist kind of, you know, having, you know, parallel, uh, you know, spiritualities, if we might, if we might, uh, you know, use that word and, 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 and buried within both is, is this, this call to be prophetic, um, and, and imagine, you know, what, what isn't yet. Um, you, you've, uh, you, you've, uh, you talked a little earlier about your own experience, uh, in, uh, kind of mu music in the African-American church. And, and, and we've talked a little bit now about racial justice. I want to turn our conversation to, um, another of your books. Hope Sings So Beautiful, Graced Encounters Across the Color Line. Um, and there's another line I want to read, um, but i got to set it up a little bit uh, for the listeners. I'm sure you know what's going to come, right? But um, you, you write about uh, kind of whether your own participation in song circles gives you any uh, influence or control or power over them. Uh, and then you respond to your own question like this, quote, um, none at all, right? No power at all. Save when someone from the black community graciously invites me, the stranger and oppressor at their gate, into the song circle. I just just really like that. I like the reverence that you uh, you showed towards uh, the community and towards the art of the community and, and towards your own um, your kind of humble place therein. Um, so I'm wondering how does entering into these kinds of conversations by way of art, by way of music or, or what have you, um, help us to have better, more meaningful conversations about things, you know, like racial justice uh, in, in the specific, but but any sorts of issues of justice uh, in, in the in the general. Yeah, wow, that's that's a, that's an awesome question. It's um, and in some ways you can hear um, beneath the passage you read um, the debate in racial justice circles today mm -hmm. over um, appropriation, cult cultural appropriation, right? right. Um, borrowing for one's own benefit the cultural riches of another. You know, um, what I'm trying to articulate there is um, not not uh, a care not to do that, but rather um, to open oneself to the appreciation of the not the appropriation, but the appreciation of. And that and that for me um, in my life uh, has been a gift, a grace from others who have invited me into their churches or their in the in the example I think uh, that you read from there, I'm talking about, uh, what I call song circles or being invited into the musical tradition of the black church. Hmm. 
mainly or namely through the spirituals, the slave songs and spirituals or what Du Bois called the sorrow songs. I was introduced to that tradition by a woman named Issei Barnwell, who is a member of, of the acapella group Sweet Honey in the Rock, which is a, a, a beloved, well-known acapella group, been around for decades. She taught a summer course at Naropa, so I'm like 26, 27, uh, called Building a Vocal Community, in which she introduced the class, all of us, uh, we were with her for like a two or three week summer session. And every day she introduced us to the narratives and the stories that gave birth to the spirituals. And I can tell you, as you can imagine, she's a powerhouse vocalist and um, just an amazing figure who very graciously invited us into this tradition. Uh, and from there, you know, I was hooked. It, it, it brought me into African-American literature, Frederick Douglass, um, Langston Hughes, you know, James Baldwin, um, the slave narratives of, of men and women that I've since taught for many years. Hmm. But my point in that passage is simply use the word humility that we come to other communities with, with a kind of hat in hand humility, if you will, if we're drawn to them, it, it, it uh, you know, the gift, the grace of being invited into other communities. And so one of the main theses of, of that book, Hope Sings So Beautiful, Graced Encounters Across the Color Line, is that our churches, our mosques, our synagogues ought to be places of, 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 of reparation, of healing, of repairing the histories that keep us apart from each other. If not the churches, then who? Who will do this work, you know? Um, and so I point to people like Howard Thurman, uh, who was uh, himself a, a brilliant African-American pastor and mystic, um, who founded the very first church, ecumenical church in the United States, whose spe specific aim was to bring together people across racial and um, denominational divides. It was called the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco. Uh, a, a man who was well ahead of his time. This was prior to the civil rights movement, you know. Uh, but but I'm convinced that our our young people yearn for these kinds of experiences, uh, and and I try as best as I can in my classes to get students out of the classroom and into local church communities to experience um, the riches of cultures that are outside of their knowledge base, you know, outside of their comfort zone. And the result is almost always just quite powerful, you know. But key to that experience is that the, those folks in those communities share their story, mm -hmm. uh, share their music, share their, their dress, their food, Etc. You know, and I'll last point I'll make because it's such a powerful, important question. I would put it this way that so much of at least academic race discourse in the realm that I occupy in academic spaces, um, you know, it, it often uh, tends to focus and rightly, understandably, on the suffering. Uh, the inheritance of suffering of, for example, the black community, what sometimes is missed, and that's what white folks hear, you know, 
but blacks themselves, African-Americans of all kinds will, will say, please don't define us mo monolithically uh, and don't define us uh, ontologically, if you will, by our suffering. What's missed is the beauty, you know, the mm -hmm. cultural riches, the genius that has contributed to the building of this country, the building of the Catholic Church. And so the experience of black Catholics, the riches that are there. And, and so I want to, in that book and in my teaching, I've tried to also emphasize, right, the grace, the beauty, the joy that comes through in our experiences of, of, of other cultures that we may not be familiar with. Yeah, no, that's a lot to unpack and think about. And um, um, uh, I, I think, I mean, I think we've, you've, you've made a compelling argument, right? Uh, two kind of broad areas, creativity, um, imagination as, as discovery of self, and then creativity, imagination as, um, as, as discovery of how I can bring myself into the work of, of kind of repairing relationships writ large, right? Um, uh, and, you know, just the work of justice. Um, and I, I wonder now, uh, kind of as we near the end of our, of our conversation, um, if you might offer your reflections on, on what are the obstacles or the threats to creativity, um, whether it's uh, kind of in a community or, or, or just within, within, you know, myself, ourselves, um, that listeners should be uh, mindful of as they, you know, try to pursue this work, whether they are, you know, in traditionally creative careers or not, um, still this call to foster that artistic spirit, you know, for, for inner, inner, uh, uh, inner mindfulness and, 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 and justice. Yeah. What are the obstacles to the art spirit, exactly. if you will, the uh, creativity that wants to be born in, in each of us? Um, I can say for myself, you know, daily, it's uh, of course it's the grind <laughs> yes it's just for a lot of folks daily survival getting by taking care of the kids getting them where they need to go um you know living living week to week month to month um there's a lot of folks who you know uh, are as it were prisoners of necessity and so to even have this conversation in a way feels like a luxury a, a privilege a joy mm -hmm. Uh, but for a lot of folks, it's just uh, it's the necessities of day-to-day of -day life. And that I get caught up in that as, as much as anybody, although by comparison, uh, um, I'm sure not, not as much as, as, as so many folks in our uh, world today. Uh, I would say cynicism or apathy, resignation, you know, these are, this is the way things are. And, and I just have to put my nose to the grindstone each day. Um, that, that temptation that all of us sometimes feel, uh, the imposter syndrome, I'm not worthy. I don't have the gift. I'm not a Joni Mitchell. I'm not a Stevie Wonder. <laughs> I'm right. not a Martin Luther King, you know, for God's sake. Um, you know, remember what King said, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. Um, you just need a spirit that is open and willing uh, to join together in communities to, to do the work, you know. So I think to surround yourself with other people who are creative, who are hopeful, is really important, and who can together, we can resist that. Um, I think really is one of the great temptations of our time, and for young people in particular, is a, is a sense of uh, cynicism. Why bother, you know, when we look out at the political landscape and and so forth. It can be really um, discouraging 
you know, like what, what can I do? Uh, when we look out at the environmental crisis in particular, it can feel quite paralyzing. And yet, and yet there are so many stories, individual lives, narratives of hope of people doing the work of planting the seeds of planting trees of restoring the landscape in their local environment. So I think every day it's it's what it's what Heschel calls the will to wonder, hmm. the will to it's a capacity in us, but it has to be nurtured. And it, it, at times it does involve sheer will. Today, I choose to um, not be part of a, another, as Pink Floyd puts it, another brick in the wall or another cog in the machine. You know, welcome, my son. Welcome to the machine. <laughs> One of the songs famously puts it. Uh, Heschel says, look, at the, near the end of his life in a famous interview, 1972, and I quote this at the end of my book, um, the interviewer uh, asks him, what would you say to young people? And he says, above all, remember um, that, that you, your life is a work of art. Approach it each day as, as a work of art. You're not a machine. You're not a machine. And don't let anybody tell you that you are. Pay attention to those moments and those insights that your own experience gives you each day. Pay attention to those artists and other people around you who move you, who give you hope, writers, poets. You know, Amanda Gorman, uh, one of my favorite poets right now, who is a voice of a new uh, generation. Um, you know, pay attention to those movements of the inner spirit that Ignatius would say that give you consolation that energize you, give you hope each day and surround yourself with other, you know, hopeful, creative people and you'll be all right. But just don't, don't let them convince you that you've got to be part of the machine. You know, yeah. we're all called to be, to build beloved community. Um, and we, we, you know, each day that will to wonder can, uh, can, can give us encouragement that our small actions and our large ones can, uh, can do do a part to plant those seeds yeah well chris i think that's a great place to end thank you for your your reflections and your insights and your wisdom uh and we hope you'll come back again and, and talk to us uh when your next project is uh is, is released i look forward to it very much thanks so much for for having me i've enjoyed it AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington DC this episode was edited by me, Eric Clayton. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference Communications team is Mike Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, Kristen Smith, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits at jesuits.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get our weekly email reflection series. Now discern this by visiting jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about becoming a Jesuit or Jesuit life in general, connect with your local vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, as St. Ignatius may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.